0: Welcome to MCS Pentecast, Pentecostal Podcast about Theology and Life in the Spirit, featuring both scholars and practitioners. MCS Pentecasts are produced by Master's College and Seminary in Ontario, Canada. I'm Van Johnson, Dean of Master's Pentecostal Seminary.
1: This is Peter Newman. Assistant Dean of Masters Pentecostal College. This podcast is part one of three of a live presentation given by Dr. Van Johnson to a group of pastors at Royal View Pentecostal Church in London, Ontario on February 21, 2013. The topic? Important Biblical Issues in the Church Today. New Testament scholars have been suggesting for a while now that we may not be reading the Bible for all it's worth. Dr. Johnson looks at two methods for reading the Bible well. In this Pentecost, Part 1, he addresses reading the Bible as a grand narrative.
0: Okay, so the idea here is, what are the biblical issues that are swirling about that you should know about as pastors? In other words, what have we been talking about within New Testament circles in particular while you've been busy pastoring? I, I whittled it down to four. There's a lot of significant areas. And let me start by saying that there is no time within my time where biblical studies have been more supportive for the evangelical and more supportive for the Pentecostal. Much of the early 18 and 1900s in New Testament studies was digging below the text, sort of ignoring the text and trying to figure out what was below it. So what were the written sources that led to the written Gospels? And so the theory of Q comes up. and The debate about which Gospel was written first, so we know who Matthew and Luke use, because they share this common material. So mark in priority. And perhaps the most radical stage was in the mid-1900s, and many of you would know the name Rudolf Bultmann. Uh, Boltmann says, okay, what, what about the oral stage? What about the stage before any of the Gospels are written? And there is a significant block of time before the Gospels are written. So if Jesus dies somewhere around 30, probably Mark, probably the first Gospel written, Uh, the earliest any scholar is willing to put the composition of Mark is the mid-50s. Well, let's take 60 then. It's easy. The math is simple. It's about a 30-year span of time when what we see in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and John, that's being passed on orally. And, and Bultmann starts to focus in on the oral stage. And he makes a significant presumption, which is, which is still out there lingering more on the less conservative wings of biblical studies, that in the oral stage, changes are made to the tradition So if we're really going to figure out what Jesus said, well, we've got to take these written words with grains of of salt and apply criteria to peel back the layers that have been added. Uh, When I'm going to seminary, some of the echoes of this kind of, of radical view of the Gospels and the unreliability of the final copy was still being bandied about. Boy, but after I graduated from seminary, all of a sudden there was a whole new wave that said, okay, forget forget this kind of vertical analysis which takes the gospel and says, let's dig underneath to see what the roots are. Now all of a sudden we're back to a stage where you can read both conservative and less conservative biblical scholars on the biblical text, and they're back to focusing on the text itself. So it is a wonderful time to invite students into New Testament theology and history classes. And it's a wonderful time for me to talk to you about some of the very positive trends in biblical studies. Okay? So I have, I have chosen four. Number one is this new, rather new canonical approach to reading the Bible, whereby we take seriously the fact that, yes, there are 66 books in here bound by a cover, or 66 uh, items that you can scroll down on your digital U version. But there is a new trend now saying, what if we took seriously that this is a book whereby the entire book is greater than its parts? It's not just that this is a book because Genesis starts at the beginning and Revelation. Well, what else would you put at the end? But that somehow, now that we have it, when you read it, a larger story emerges, a story that none of the individual contributors as such would have been aware of because when they were making their contribution, there was no biblical canon. There was no story started as such that they would say, you know, if I wanted to get in this book, where would I make my contribution? Look, look, the Old Testament canon is still being formed at the time of Jesus. And the New Testament canon, the first attempt to try and collect a series of books, because there was a heretic roaming around and saying, okay, I've already chosen, is, is, the, uh, is the mid-100s. So this is a very interesting approach that says, look, these, these were authors working within their own circles, within their own te- settings, knowing what had been written before them, but not imagining ever this... But what if we take this now as, as a grand story, as a grand, as, a, as a grand narrative of what God has intended to do since things went awry in the first couple chapters? Well, this is very interesting now. So a canonical approach, taking the canon as is and saying, now that we have it this way, let's read it this way. Yeah? So with any story, with any story, there's a beginning, there's a middle, and there's an end. The beginning, there's, there's, some, there's some statement of purpose, there's, there's some statement of how the story begins, and then the middle is something goes awry, or some objective must be achieved, and then the ending is how it's all resolved. In your handout there, I've given you a, a short idea of how we can start to preach the whole biblical text as this grand narrative of God's work to restore what was lost in the garden. So the beginning is clear. In the beginning, God creates God creates perfection. And by chapter 3, something has gone horribly wrong. That, that intimacy with God, which is what Adam and Eve knew. So that when God comes walking in the cool of the day to look for them, it's, it's not the fact that God is walking in their midst that is making them nervous, that they want to hide. It's, it's, it's sin. Here you have this glorious picture of creation whereby it is perfection. There is no barrier between God and man and woman intimacy. Well, you, you, you know where this story goes. They're banished from the garden because of their sin, because of their rebellion. And the simplest way to describe what the Bible story is as a whole is that the Bible records God's, God's work to restore what had been lost in the garden. And so the middle of the story then involves him choosing a people, starting with Abraham, calling Abraham... Uh within this new emphasis now on seeing the grand narrative of the Bible as one great mission of God, uh, one text in particular is seen as a launching point, and that's Genesis 12, the, the, covenant, the covenant announcement that God makes with Abraham. God tells Abraham he will be the father of a great people and then makes an agreement with Abraham that's then carried into chapter 15 of Genesis, but... In Genesis 12, here you see God's plan for the world. Not just God's plan for Israel, but the plan for the world, which helps explain the entire, the, the entire uh, biblical story. I will make you into a great nation, Genesis 12, 2. And I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse and now note this, of course, it's text like this that Paul could look back on as he's trying to, to move the mission from being uh, centered simply on, on God's elected people, the Jews, to the Gentiles. It's, it's a text like this where Paul would say, Abraham had the gospel preached to him, and all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. So as you start following the story through, you see this proclamation that God will start with the people, not to make them exclusive, but through them there will be an inclusive move to incorporate all other nations as they see the glory of God upon Israel. Well, you know where this story goes. You know the height of God's favor perhaps is is seen in the Exodus where God leads them into, into a land, gives them a land, They become settled. So the exodus, God delivers them out. And then the height of his displeasure in the exile, where God allows the invaders to come in and drive them out of their land such that they would no longer dwell in it. And so the great story of the Bible involves a a promise An offer to Abraham to be that kind of people. The exodus to allow that people to have a place from which the glory of God could be seen. And then the failure of this people to become that light to the world, to become that faithful representative of Yahweh, and so the exile. The the depths of despair, the the lowest point of Israel's history. When all they could do was remember, by the rivers of Babylon there we sat down. And there we wept when we remembered Zion. And so as this biblical story carries forward with prophecies of of a better day coming, later days, last days, later days, when the promises will be fulfilled, it becomes apparent that Israel will never be able to complete the work that God intended Israel to do. And so God sends one Jew. To do what Israel could not do, sends Jesus. And through Jesus now, the work of of Israel is complete. Jesus becomes the faithful embodiment of God's righteousness. Jesus becomes the great Savior. Jesus becomes the Savior, the the light of the world. And so the story then follows in the Gospels of his preaching and his declaration and the beginning of this mission of God now in a new phase mission of God terminology is very common now in this, in this new canonical reading. Uh, are you familiar with the terminology? hear it a lot. One of the books that I put in your bibliography there at the end, the one by uh, Christopher Wright, is maybe, is maybe the most popular book right now that says from start to finish, this is the mission of God in the world. Starts with Israel and then, then moves through Jesus and is being continued on to this day through us in the church. And so notice this reading of the canon then that says, there is a grand story that we are all a part of. It's no longer something privatistic that we are involved in. There's some grand story that we are all a part of. And so the church finds its place as part of something larger that God is is doing. And then John has this revelation, this dream of what the people of God were still only imagining, for what God starts to do in Christ is not yet complete. And so the ending of the story in Revelation 21, John sees the future where all history is moving. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. In other words, this is, I've, had, I've had fishermen's lobbies uh, r- respond to, to my teaching of this text wondering, you know, will there be boating? Will there be fishing? What do you mean there's no bodies of water in, in heaven? There will no longer be any sea here. John sees that there is a day coming where there will no longer be a place where people can go into the abyss. There's no longer a place where where men and women can go in ships and never return. There's no more chaos. Think of floods and tsunamis. John says, I see a day when God's sovereignty will rule. There's no longer any sea that can swallow us up. God again lives in the midst of his people. And then this beautiful verse, verse 4, which I've never really been able to preach, just, just, just between you and me. I've never been able to preach it well. All I know what to do is to read it because I'm lost for words after I read it. I don't know what else to say. No, notice the intimacy here. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death, or mourning, or crying, or pain. For the old order of things has passed away. I never know what to say when I'm preaching this. So, in good Pentecostal fashion, I just say the same thing again. A little louder, as if that now explains it. Right? <laughs> he will wipe Every tear from their eyes, there will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain. For the old order of things is passed away. And if the Spirit is really moving, and the Spirit's not moving here, so I won't read it anymore. But but, but in church, with real people who love the Word, if the Spirit's moving, I read it a third time. Or maybe I get them to read it with me. This wonderful vision that someday what was lost in the garden is... Restored, and God now lives amongst us so that everything that we associate with God's distance is now removed. The grand narrative, the, the whole story of God's work in the world, right? Okay, so let's, let's summarize this by saying if we take this as the grand story, then notice Peter mentioned this earlier, uh, quoting, quoting some theologian that I don't read. Um, it includes Israel and the church this, this is not just a story about us in the New Testament it's about God's work in the world that there is there is a still lingering a, a, a bizarre eschatological uh, approach Peter mentioned I have um, slides and charts and many of us grew up with those the, the dispensational uh, charts. And, and occasionally, particularly if I'm watching late-night uh, preachers, uh, every once in a while you'll see a back wall covered with, with these charts, God's dispensation. Early Pentecostals were very attracted to this, by the way. They were attracted to it because uh, it, it affirmed what was central to them, that they were living in the last days and Jesus was about to return. What, what attracted them was this idea of the soon return of Jesus. And so this rapture idea captures their imagination because it seemed like that eschatological idea best preserved what they knew in their hearts. That there's a certain urgency because Jesus was coming back soon. Uh, What the early Pentecostals didn't realize was all the baggage that came with dispensationalism. Do you know traditional dispensational teaching? It means that everything in the Old Testament has nothing really to do with the church. Even Jesus' teaching, even the Sermon on the Mount, is not about the church, it's, it's God's plan for Israel. But because Israel says no to God, the church comes in as a bit of a parenthetical moment. The church, the church is inserted, and so the rapture idea, and I, I've heard enough, I've heard enough uh, preaching from Revelation to know how this goes, the, the, the preacher will, will use the dispensational idea that if the church comes in in an interim basis, the church has to be removed from the scene so that God can finish plan A, his work with Israel. And so haven't you ever heard somebody say the church is no longer mentioned after chapter, well, at the end of chapter 3 from one, there's no mention of the church? So you have the letters to the seven churches, but now God has to get the church out of the way because really the promises of God are for, are for Israel. So it's sort of, sort of a, a, a strange system for us to adopt. But we adopted the idea of dispensationalism in the charts because we wanted a system that said, there's something significant about to happen, the return of Christ. So any story of the biblical narrative has to take into account both both the Old Testament and the New Testament. And, of course, any biblical story needs to take into account not just this, and enough has been said already this morning that I need only say it once in passing, that God's plan is more than just something private for you and I as as God prepares certain individuals to be saved on that last day. But it's part of God's great plan to transform the world. So it's both cosmic and, and global. And so perhaps this kind of perspective opens us up to considering, considering, as the Lord tarries, how we might be trying to influence our communities and calling for, for justice. In fact, there's, there's an interesting connection between spirit baptism and social justice that we really haven't thought much about. The deck spirit baptism being the ability to speak beyond our ability what God once said. And we think about it primarily in terms of, of witness, for that's biblically what it is. But of course, there's an aspect to our witness that can be a call for God's kingdom to be exemplified now. And what I'm thinking of in particular is Jesus' statement as to why the Spirit has come upon him in Luke chapter 4. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to preach good news to the right? And when Jesus then baptizes the 120 in the spirit, they are to be his witnesses. They are to carry the message forward. There's a connection here I think we need to think more about in terms of spirit baptism and the call for the disenfranchised to receive the gospel and be somewhat concerned about what the the world looks like, other than just in our own churches. Okay, so there, there's the idea of the grand narrative. Okay, let's talk about... Uh, oh, th- th- there's, there's a note here. Uh, here's, here's a biblical scholar I read, Joel Green. I read a lot of Joel Green. Green says that even though the end is fixed, it doesn't take all the mystery out of it. And so I've actually given you the page number from his book that he co-edited, Narrative Reading, Narrative Preaching. He says, we know the ending, but what we do not know is how exactly God will accomplish this. As the Israelites were occasionally surprised in the Old Testament as to how God would work his plan out, we may be surprised too. And this one, and we don't yet know who's going to participate. We don't know yet who's going to align himself or herself with God's plan and who's going to try to oppose it. Ah, well well said. Well said.
1: We hope you've enjoyed this episode of MCS Pentecasts, podcasts produced by Masters College and Seminary. MCS Pentecasts are available online at mcs.edu and also through iTunes Podcasts. Master's College and Seminary offers biblical, theological, and practical courses from a Pentecostal perspective at both undergrad and graduate levels. For more information on graduate courses offered through Master's Pentecostal Seminary in Toronto, Ontario, Canada, visit mpseminary.com. For undergrad courses at Master's Pentecostal Bible College in Peterborough, Canada, please visit mcs.edu.